Hockey and baseball to a little BS. It's the BS Sports Show with Brendan Azov and Stefan Rosner on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the BS Sports Show, our first ever live show with the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. My name is Brendan Azov, and joining me soon is the one and only Stefan Rosner. Please stick, up, stick with us for the next two hours. We'll be talking about the exciting qualifying round and round-robin games that are happening right now in the NHL, as well as what's going on around the MLB regarding the game action and the coronavirus outbreak. Later in the 10 o'clock hour, we will be joined by Jake Brown of the New York Post, who covers the New York Mets. And after that, we will have an exclusive interview with the New Jersey Devils play-by-play announcer, Steve Cangelosi, starting at 10.30. Stefan, I'm amped up. I know we're excited to get started with this live show. Let's get to it, man. Share your story that you got with us. I know it's an exciting one. Yeah, so I'm a hockey goalie. Got into a little scuffle the other day in our game. A blocker, Brendan, very, very powerful weapon. I'll tell you something, right? Three times in my life did I feel that much power. So obviously the fight, punching someone in the face with a blocker, getting a dog because you have a lot of power over a dog. And third and final, you know that feeling you get when you draft a team in NHL 20 and it's just a dynamic team? That's power when you beat an opponent. 100%. Great way to start my week with a hockey fight, doing great with the team, but I can't wait to get this started. I'm very excited. Definitely. And yeah, like you said, hockey fights, we've seen a couple of them so far in the qualifying round with the intensity amped up and especially defense, which has been a priority throughout the first round. We've seen the Carolina Hurricanes advance against the New York Rangers and their defense was their priority, even without Dougie Hamilton. We've seen a couple other teams as well shut down their opponents. So defense has been thriving early on and Columbus Blue Jackets, they do it better than anybody else. Yeah, you look at playoffs, and they always say defense wins championships, right? But you look at the Florida Panthers-Islanders series. Florida Panthers, high-octane offensive team. Islanders, not so much offensively. Defense is really their strong suit. And, yes, they dropped the game today. They're still up in a series 2-1. to one. But the reason they won the first two games is because when they needed to, their defense locked down. And it also starts with goaltending. We'll get to goaltending a little later. But, Brendan, you said it. Defense, Columbus Blue Jackets, Toronto. Toronto has probably one of the better offensive lineups in the league. Maybe you could talk about Tampa. Tavares, Marner, Matthews. Yep. They're going against the Columbus Blue Jackets team that lost Panera in the offseason, Duchesne in the offseason, Bobrovsky, which, we'll, again, we'll get to. But they find a way to shut out the Toronto Maple Leafs in game one. Yeah, I mean, it's unreal. And, again, credit to John Tortorella. Every year his teams go into the playoffs, and you don't think they're going to do anything. And then all of a sudden you see their defensive structure, and they just stymie their opponents. And, I mean, from this time with the New York Rangers now to Columbus, it's the same type of system. You're going to have to block shots. You're going to have to take the body. And if you don't do it, you're not going to play. And he stresses that. And we've seen that so far. Obviously, they don't have any superstars that are going to be scoring, and yet they're still every bit in this series with Toronto. Uh, you talk, we talked about the Carolina Hurricanes, obviously – they have Sebastian Naho, Andre Svechnikov, and their defense is still what stands out. Obviously, the Rangers couldn't get anything going. They scored four goals in three games, and that's without Dougie Hamilton and Brett Pesci. So Carolina is a team to be reckoned with in the East. And the Islanders, again, defensive structure under Barry Trotz. You, you look at the pattern here with the veteran head coaches that they just know how to win games in the playoffs. And Arizona's an up-and-coming team, which we'll get to now, with, against Nashville, who's a veteran playoff team. And they're just hanging in there they're up two games to one they're holding Nashville to one two goals a game and and when they win it's lopsided well we talked about this earlier Brendan is Arizona could not have been faced off against a better opponent for themselves Chaika their general manager gives up on the team quits 
out of nowhere, out of the blue. And we said, you know what? This is probably going to be a good thing for this team. They're going against a Nashville Predators team that really underperformed the whole year. Pekka Rene, two-time Vesna winner. Terrible. Roman Yossi is the only reason this team is in a playoff picture. Their defenseman, he had a hell of a year, but a guy like Duchesne didn't do anything. Turris, nothing. Arvidsson really struggled. So Arizona Coyotes bring something that most teams don't have, and that's two dynamic goaltenders. Kemper has been unreal all year. Their defense led by Oliver ekman Larson. They find a way to get those opportunities and score. And against a Nashville team that really hasn't done anything offensively all year and relied on one sole defenseman, I mean, this is a team that the Arizona Coyotes should beat off in this series. 100%. And you think about what, what Arizona brings to the table. It's an, a team that I don't think they had a person score over 40 points. Like you, when you think about playoff teams, you always have a couple of guys that are going to be able to score. They don't have that. It's a collective unit. Obviously they got Taylor Hall at the deadline, Phil Kessel underperformed, Derek Stefan, Clayton Keller, these guys underperformed the season, but yet they're still in the playoffs. They're still going to be competitive because of their d- defense and their goaltending in the back end. Darcy Kemper has been phenomenal so far in this series. And then you look at the other side in Nashville, and their goaltending situation has been, you know, up and down. Pecorine, the longtime veteran, isn't starting. They have the backup Sorrow starting. You look at their offense, they only re- they rely on one line way too much. Victor Arvidsson, I think, scored his second today, their only goal. And if him or Forsberg isn't putting the puck in the back of the net, you don't see any goals coming from Nashville. And it's a problem. So their defense, led by Roman Yossi, is still very competitive. But, I mean, at the same time, it's very similar to what Carolina did to the Rangers, and it's what Arizona's doing to Nashville. If you're not going to score, you're not going to win. And the Rangers couldn't score, which we'll get into right now, and Nashville's having trouble scoring as well. Yeah, you talk about the Rangers, and, yes, they're the first team to go home. They have the offensive capability to put up goals. You have a guy like Panarin, Zibanejad, who had an unreal season. Panarin did too. I mean, you got, they have a lot of – Capo Caco, yes. He didn't have a great year, but he started to come into his own earlier. Edel came up big. Kreider back. This is not a team you think is going to struggle to score goals. And then you look on the defensive side of the puck. This is really where it hurt the team, Brennan. 100%. Listen, as a Ranger fan, I'll say they still won the season series four games to three, all right? We'll take that. But uh, they did. They now enter the Alexis Lafayette sweepstakes, I should say. 12.5% chance of winning that first overall pick. And Carolina showed that they're a veteran team. This is a team that went to the Eastern Conference last year, the Eastern Conference Finals. And Sebastian Ajo, arguably one of the top players in the NHL, Carolina's best player, eight points, three goals, five assists in the three-game series. Like, uh, you just can't make that up. And especially his last goal where he stripped Jacob Truba, made a veteran defenseman look silly, and then walked Tony D'Angelo. It was one of the prettiest goals I've ever seen. And just saying it makes me want to, like, curl up and vomit because I'm a Rangers fan. But at the same time, he walked everybody. Shesterkin had no chance. And he sealed the deal for his team. And that was the common thread in the series is that Ajo, Svechnikov, the two big names on Carolina, stepped up. And Zibanejad and Panarin were awfully quiet for the seasons that they had. You look at Sebastian Ajo, and he was this close to not being a member of the Carolina Hurricanes year. Montreal Canadiens offered him a hefty offer sheet. But Carolina realized, you know what? This is a guy that deserves it. Bring him back. And actually, he, I don't think he, was scoreless. he had scored a goal in his first 11 games. If that, he scored one. And then he ended the season as their leading scorer. This guy's confidence, I mean, looking at his game and compared to Matthew Barzell, who's going to ask for similar money, Ajo just finds a way to click with this unit. Like you said, Svechnikov stepped up and the Rangers didn't. I, you know, watching this series, look like the puck was bouncing over Panarin and Zibanejad's stick. It looked like they weren't making the plays we're used to seeing. And I'm not going to say stage fright. The Rangers, 11, rookie, 11 players playing that have never played in a playoff game. Yep. Okay. What hurt for me in this series was watching Henrik Lundqvist because – you know, his time's coming to an end, and it's really sad. And as a goalie, as an Islander fan, you know, I can hate the Rangers all I want. Lundqvist is a guy, though, that always did the right thing. 
always stood up for his teammates, always took the blame, which not a lot of goalies are going to do. They're usually not going to say anything. But after every loss, Lundqvist stepped up. And when they panned to him, once that series ended, yeah. God, get the tissues. Yeah, it was so sad to see. And it could really be the last image we have of him as a, in a Ranger uniform is that little pouty face sitting on outside the ice, not playing. And it's completely out of his control, which is such a sad way to end what, what really is an illustrious career with the blue shirts. And you look at the other side and their counterparts and Peter Morazic, the first two games, made every save he had to. He wasn't called upon often in game one, but in game two, he robbed Brett Howden on the doorstep, made a couple of phenomenal saves and really propelled Carolina to a 2-0 series lead. And surprisingly, they went to James Reimer in game three because it was a back-to-back. But people thought, you know, Morazic hasn't faced a ton of shots. Maybe they'll stick with him. And what a move by Rod Brindamore because Peter, uh, Peter Morazic, James Reimer, made one of the best saves I think I've ever seen in the playoff game. It was Holtby-esque from the Stanley Cup Finals, reaching back and robbing Philip Edel with the stick. And I remember just, I was looking at it saying, if he's going to stop that puck, there is no way the Rangers are going to win this series. He was dialed in. He was just save after save, and he completely demoralized the Rangers offensively. It was incredible to watch. You could see just the way he was making saves, how confident he was. You see a goalie stack the pads. You don't see that often, but he came out and was aggressive, made that play. He made a hell of another handful of saves. And this is a guy that we've been waiting to see this since he broke into the league. Toronto, he did nothing. He's bounced around. Yep. And I'm sh- he probably didn't think he was going to play in a regular season game, let alone a playoff game for the uh, Carolina Hurricanes. And I think that it just goes to show the importance. We talked about earlier, the importance of having two goalies you can rely on. You look at New York Islanders. Thomas Wrights had an abysmal second half of the season where he couldn't even stop a beach ball, all right? But Barry Trotz had all the faith in the world to put him into a game if he had to against Florida due to his record, what he did in 2016, helping Islanders get to the second round for the first time since 1993. Despite what, see, this is what it meant. Regular season does not matter. It's what you do now that matters, okay? Talk about Chesterkin before we move on. You know, what do you think of him in his first playoff game? He looked calm. He looked solid. Uh, he came out, challenged the shooters. I don't think any of the goals were really on him, obviously. The first goal was a long shift in the defensive end, so... For his first NHL playoff game, he did as, as well as you can expect. I love the way he handled the puck. I think that that's a, something the Rangers haven't had in goal with Lundqvist, and it's going to really help this young defense as they start to turn over and get rid of the veterans and bring up the prospects. But Shesterkin was solid, nothing on the goaltenders. Lundqvist was solid when he played, too. It was just no offense. And talking about goaltenders, the New York Islanders and Florida Panthers played today, and the series is now two games to one. A, a little bit of a blunder by Barlamov, which we'll dive more into later, but kind of cost the Islanders what could have been a sweep today. Yeah, this was a tough game because I walked away for five minutes and I come back and it's through. And I was dealing with something to set up for this show. I walk back and I'm like, what, what had just happened? Of course I go and watch. So today's game was just pretty much a mental lapse. It was a couple of mistakes. The Islanders made and came back to bite them. You look at the Florida Panthers, top power play unit in this league. So what should your game plan be, Brendan? against a top player play unit in this league. Not take penalties. Don't take penalties. <laughs> exactly. And what do they do? They take five. But it's not the first time. In the game one and game two, they did that as well, and they got burned for it. Luckily, they were able to win game one. They shut the door defensively. Game two, they were losing, came back and won. But in this game, Florida Panthers' top players came to play. And Bobrovsky, this whole series, despite an awful regular season where he set career worse and goals against average state percentage, he's playing unbelievable. But it's not even that. They found ways to score. They go two for five on the power play, the Panthers. But two of those penalties were offset due to infractions they committed. So pretty much, you know, if my math's correct, they went two for three. And they're a team that shoots the puck on the power play. The Islanders don't do that. 
And the problem with the Islanders is if you're going to take those penalties, you've got to be able to kill them off. And they just really struggled to do that. And even after killing a penalty off, we saw this happen yesterday. You don't clear the zone. Florida's still on the, you know, they have the momentum and they find where to score goals. To me, Varlamov, mixed feelings about his play on Twitter. And as a goalie, obviously, I look at things a little differently. His rebound control was very, very shaky. One goal today, bounced off his chest, went right out in front. Dandidov passes it over to Hala. Hala scores the goal. You think back and go, if he could have controlled his rebound, that doesn't happen. It's a lot of pressure on the defense. It's a defensive team that's played so well game one and game two. You would have liked to see Varlamov a little stronger. Again, he makes that mistake. This, the, three, the three things that really screwed them here today was Varlamov plays the puck outside the trapezoid, and then it leads to a goal. And obviously that's on him. He feels bad after the game. He said he shouldn't have done that. Love it. Love, love, love the answers we get. We got Scott Mayfield in the game, clears the puck over and out of play for a delay game, and the Islanders also take a too-many-men penalty. But we've seen the whole series, the Islanders' penalties they're taking, boarding, tripping. I mean, these are lazy, lazy penalties. And again, the Islanders, you know, looking, they haven't even advanced the next round yet, but you know for a fact, whatever team the Islanders are going to play, if they pull this stuff in that series, they're going to get burned. Exactly. And the Islanders are a team that needs to control the puck in order to dictate their defensive style of play. And Florida really did a great job of controlling the puck in this game. They've been throwing the body a lot the first three games of the series. They're really trying to get down on the forecheck and make the defenseman pay. And this game, it really paid off. I think Alexander Barkov was the most physical I've ever seen him play. And for a skilled player, they're, they're a leader. He, he really needed to do that. And he exemplified what the Panthers needed to do today in order to scave off elimination. So I think that the Panthers did a great job. And like you said, the Islanders do have two goaltenders as opposed to Panthers one. And there's goaltending has been a theme throughout this postseason. There's been a ridiculous amount of goaltending decisions that some people will agree with and some people will disagree with. Starting in Nashville with the legendary Pecorino being sat for UC Soros, who has been a backup goaltender his whole career. And what's your thought on that? For me as a coach, it's what have you done for me lately? And lately, since we haven't played in four months, is what have you done in training camp? And clearly, he believed that Saros gave him a better chance to win over Rene. And, you know, Rene is a professional. He's been around the league for a long time. I'm assuming he didn't like the decision because no player ever wants to see himself get sat. But my man, UC Saros, by the way, one of the shortest goalies in the NHL. I stand at 5'11". So, you know, I would say kudos to short goalies. I'm 5'9", not even close. Anyway, Saros plays outstanding in game one. They lose. He plays outstanding, and you see around the league that there was a lot of decisions made. You go from this series to a series like Robin Leonard starting for the Vegas Golden Knights. Marc-Andre Fleury had a terrible year, he's not, and he's had problems in the playoffs in the past. You see that Leonard comes over from Chicago at the deadline. He goes 3-0, allows less than two goals a game in that stretch. I think it's 9.50, 9.60 save percentage. He gets the nod to start over a guy like Fleury. But you see, you know, it doesn't pay off all the time. Mike Smith starts over Koskinen in Edmonton. Mike Smith, Koskinen's their goalie that they're paying a significant amount of money to. Mike Smith is Mike Smith, and yep. he gets shelled. And then the last one I'll talk about is you look at Minnesota Wild, and Devin Dumick, awful year. Him and Holpe, Brendan Holpe, which we won't even get to because what a waste of time to talk about. Just they didn't, they didn't have good years. They didn't have good years, and they're expected to. And luckily for the Minnesota Wild, Alex Stalock, played the majority of the you know, remaining games on the schedule before the halt in play. He played well. He's the only reason that Minnesota is in this playoff. He gets the nod to start, and he plays quite well as well. He does. And, and going back quickly to the Mike Smith starting over Miko Koskinen, that was the biggest head-scratcher to me. The other ones you can make a case for, all of them. But 
They signed Koskinen in the offseason to a big deal. It was obvious that he was the guy they wanted to be their goaltender. His numbers were very solid this year, too. And Mike Smith just gets absolutely shelled in the first period and a half. They put him in. He, st- he shuts the door. I mean, he really solidified. He stopped 18 out of 19 shots in relief. But there's nothing more you could ask a cold goaltender to do than that. And then he starts the next game, and they win. He gives up three goals, makes 23 saves. It really changed the whole momentum of the series by putting the guy that they should have started in game one in in relief. So that was the big head scratcher. But you look at the Columbus Blue Jackets series, Jonas Corposalo over Elvis Merz-Lincolns, and that was really a 1A, 1B type scenario. They both played exceptionally well this season. I think Corposalo got the start for game one in the regular season, so Tortorella just stuck with his guns beautiful decision he's been absolutely phenomenal we'll get into that in a little bit but Cam Talbot over Riddich is a huge huge upset I think that the way that Talbot's played with the Rangers and then transitioned into the starter role it hasn't really worked out but Riddich has been their guy and now all of a sudden Talbot's come in and he's been very very good he has a 202 goals against average in three playoff games yeah and that's a surprising move again Riddich was a guy that came in I feel like out of nowhere you know, Mike Smith was the goalie there. They swap in Edmonton. Cam Talbot couldn't stop anything in Edmonton. We, we've seen that before in Edmonton. You know, they never – I mean, you have a guy like Taylor Hall doesn't do anything. Everly didn't score a playoff goal when he was with them. It's just crazy what happens in Edmonton. But, I mean, they got McDavid now so they could all relax. But you look at Cam Talbot, the guy that left the Rangers. He had a great run with the Rangers. They played very well defensively in front of him, which I think uh, showed more than what was there. I think that he made a lot of unreal saves in that run. Yeah. But he's not, he wasn't that level of a goalie, and Edmonton bit on it and got him. We look at him, and he's, he's making the most of his opportunities. Like you said, 2-1, 2.02 2 goals against. When I get the save percentage a little up, 905 is not great. But in the playoffs, it doesn't matter what your numbers are. You find a way to win your battle, and that's what Cam Talbot's doing. Yeah, Calgary has done that so far in that series. And, and like you said, he, his numbers were inflated by a phenomenal Raiders defense. And uh, that, that team knew how to play defense. I don't think they allowed more than 2.2 goals per game, which is absurd. So he definitely benefited. Didn't get the same chance at Edmonton. That team was shaky. But in the playoffs, when the games are tighter, you could see what kind of goaltender he could be. And jumping back to Corpusalo, the Columbus Blue Jackets, Toronto Maple Leafs, tied one in the series. And it's been an interesting start. Usually you don't see a Columbus Blue Jackets team get a shutout, then get shut out in the next game. So limited offense, a lot more focus on defense. Obviously, we have to talk about the Jake Muzzin injury. Very scary moment. Didn't look like much, but he had to get stretchered off, so we wish him the best. And that's a big loss for Toronto on a blue line, especially after they played so good defensively in game two. Well, you look at this Toronto team, and they are not defensively you know, strong. That's been their problem all year. They could score abund- abundance of goals, but the defense wasn't there. Muzzin wasn't perfect this year, but he's a reliable defenseman. He's won a cup. He's won two cups, I believe. So Thanks. losing him... You know, it's tough, and the way to go down an injury gets stretched off. I haven't seen a guy get stretched off the ice since Max Pesciotti was hit by his Dano Chara. And that was when he, you know, came across the boards, got pretty much clotheslined. I mean, that was brutal. I, I wish him the best of luck. I hope he re- he's back with his teammates. Yep. He's not going to play. He's out for the remainder of the, of the round, and I'm assuming it'll, it'll take some time for him to get back in there. But it's a tough loss. It really is. And, you know, hopefully Toronto can now focus on the offense. They – Huge sigh of relief by Austin Matthews after scoring that goal halfway through game two. And it was the first goal they scored that series. Nobody else is going to get that besides Matthews. He, he's their guy. And, and you saw it kind of pick up the whole team. John Tavares winds up netting one. So if those big stars can start to come out and, and score, they're, they're going to have to be the guys that do it because Columbus is not going to allow a second or third line player to 
to get the goals. And, and it's really been something that's been fun to watch. These two teams, polar opposites of each other, keep competing. And guys, don't go anywhere. After the break, we'll be a lot more hockey, and we'll get into a little baseball as well. So please stay tuned to the BS Sports Show. It's the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the BS Sports Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the BS Sports Show. So as we promised, we're going to dive into the hockey games that have happened today on Wednesday, August 5th. Obviously, we discussed already the Florida Panthers defeating the New York Islanders 3-2. to We'll move on now to the Nashville Predators against the Arizona Coyotes. This game started off interesting. Nashville came out hot, out shooting the Coyotes 12-1. to But despite that shot total, it was Arizona who was out in front early one to nothing, And they didn't look back after that one goal lead. They, they kept it and kept pushing forward thanks to the to performance of Darcy Kemper, pretty much. Yeah, you look at this, and this is a game that Nashville probably should win. I mean, look at the stats in this game. 40 shots on goal for Nashville, only 28 for the Coyotes. Nashville won 54.1% of faceoffs. I mean, this is a game that you expect Nashville to win because they were able to generate offense. But again, we see the same problem with Nashville that we saw during the regular season. They don't find ways to score. And that puts a lot of pressure on their defense and goaltending. And Arizona, which has been scoring this series, finally gets goals from their big guys. Taylor Hall gets a goal. This is a guy that needs to produce in this playoffs because he's a free agent. I do not think he's going back to Arizona. He's going to look for a big deal like Duchesne did. Hopefully he does better next year than Duchesne did this year after what he did in the last season's playoffs. But for the Coyotes, again, we'll go back to it. This is a series they should, they should win easily. And Darcy Kemper has been a rock all year long, and he's doing it again, and they take a 2-1 series lead. Yeah, I mean, Darcy Kemper, just absolutely phenomenal start to this game. I think he set the record for the Coyotes' saves in the first period. If it was, I think it was 19 saves in the first period that he had. And it, it just a great performance all around. We, we talked before the series why both of us picked Arizona to win was because of their defense and goaltending. And so far, that's exactly how it's playing out. Nashville, who struggled, like you said, all year to score, has not found ways to beat Darcy Kemper. And now they face the brink of elimination. Taylor Hall scored. Carl Soderberg scored. Connor Garland got a goal. Uh, just Christian Dvorak got one as well. So a couple of depth guys, a couple of big names. And for a Coyotes team that also has found difficulty scoring, especially the second half of the season, those four guys are some big names to get on the board, especially develop some confidence. Uh, you move on to another series now. Well, not really a series, but more of a round robin, if you will. Tampa Bay Lightning versus the Boston Bruins. A little bit of surprise that the Boston Bruins now are 0-2 in the round-robin play. The highest seed that they can have is the third seed overall. So the team with the most points in the NHL in the regular season will not finish one or two in the Eastern Conference. Yeah, and honestly, this was something that you could see coming. A team that hot gets stopped in its tracks, right? They're confident, and this is the biggest thing for me is what I see with you know these top teams is what are they working on? They're already the best at their game. They're practicing the same stuff they practiced. The regular season that paid off, they're not going against opponents. But you look at a team that was struggling heading into this, like a, not even a Flyers team because they made it in the top, but even the Islanders who weren't, were barely in, the Rangers who were barely in, they have a list of A, B, C, and D, what they have to work on to do well. Bruins didn't have that. Bruins already knew what they was working. There was nothing to work on. And now you're seeing, I mean, okay, Rass does not start game one for Boston. He was hurt. Halak plays. Wasn't great team didn't play great the, the Flyers come out of, I mean this is a Flyers team that could score and they're going to be exciting to watch but you know you're shocked to see a team like the Bruins just because of their veteran leadership you know they haven't been on the ice in a while they're a top team you don't expect them to be cocky we're not seeing them being cocky we're just seeing them getting outplayed and this was a tough game because they they lost with I think two under two minutes to play in this one they lost 
A minute 17. A minute 17. Johnson scored a minute 17 to go. Vasilevsky, 25 saves. Rask, first game back, 32 saves. That's pretty good. Point scores, Kaloran scores, Johnson, McAvoy and Wagner for the Boston. But this was a great hockey game. It's a physical hockey game. Yeah, it was. And I really, watching this game pan out, I thought it was going to be the type of game that Boston needed. They went down 2 nothing early, and then they, they kind of stormed back, and it was 2-2, and it looked like it was going to go to overtime, which in the round robin's three-on-three. So you put out Bergeron, Marshawn, Pasternak, whoever, whichever threesome you go with, and all of a sudden it's a game that you win, you feel good, you came back, you rallied as a team, and instead it turns into a demoralizing loss with under two minutes to go. And it, it's just one of those things that the positive you can take Besides the comeback, his RAS performance, and especially in his first game in over four and a half months. So uh, I think that Boston will be fine, especially once it starts becoming elimination games. That always brings out the best, especially in a veteran group. But a group that's not struggling right now and that looks like an absolute wagon is the Colorado Avalanche. They are fast. They are talented. The one question mark that people had was their goaltending. And Philip Grubauer's looked great so far. Gave up one goal against the defending champion St. Louis Blues in their opener. And they just won 4 nothing again today over the Dallas Stars. So outscoring their opponents 6-1 to one in the first two games. Yeah, and Grubauer didn't get the start today. Brendan, you know who got the start? Who got the start? Who got the start? I can't say his name, so I'm Me not either, even going to try. But, you know, our man Pavel over there, Franchus. <laughs> Franchus spells his name wrong. Yeah, it's just tough spelling. He gets the start. Doesn't face a lot of shots, 27, but they shut out the Dallas Stars 4 nothing. And this is a team that I, we all talked about this. They're, they're probably going to the Western Conference Final, if not the Stanley Cup, because, I mean, I watched Nathan McKinnon fly. And we're going to talk about another player that flew. But Nathan McKinnon's speed, it's not even just his raw speed. It's his speed with the puck that changes everything. Going to the outside, generating offense. He blows blind guys like it's nothing. I could barely see him on TV. You got to like that. And then you have a young guy on the back end like Makar, who has the, the vision of a 35-year-old, 15-year veteran, finding him open. You got Ranton in. Landis got Donskoy scoring. You got, you got depth scoring. And this Colorado team just comes at you with full force. Yeah, they are, they are so talented. And then you look at especially the first goal today was scored by Kel McCarr, who might, he's probably going to win the Calder Trophy. He's one of the best young defensemen the league's seen in a long, long time. He's so talented offensively. And then you go Jonas Donskoy, Vlad Nemesnikov, who they picked up at the deadline, and Alex Burakovsky, who they got from the Capitals. So it's not really the big names in this game, but it doesn't have to be. They still scored four goals. And I, when you talk about McKinnon's speed, I think about his foot speed and hand speed. He's one of the few players that can match both. And I, I don't know if it was last year or two years ago where he crossed somebody up in a playoff game and he crossed the defenseman up so bad that his left skate went full force into the air. He managed to keep his balance and still score. But that's how fast he is. He crossed himself up, let alone the defenseman. So this team is absolutely stacked. They're my pick to go into the Stanley Cup from the West. And I wouldn't be surprised if they do win it just because of how good they are. But another team that has kind of been struggling so far to the gate in the qualifying round is Pittsburgh. They're up 3-2 currently in period two over Montreal. I've been rather surprised with that series. I thought Pittsburgh was going to run away with it, but Carey Price has, has proved that he's not, he's not done yet. You look at this series, and it's, again, it goes back to my point about defensive systems. Montreal Canadiens, since Price has been on the team, have never been a score-first mentality. It's been play defense. Look at this lineup up and down. There's not that much, quote-unquote, talent compared to a team like Pittsburgh, Crosby, Malkin. These are unreal talents that should Gensel, even Hornquist. These are guys that should be finding ways to score. And obviously Crosby's doing his job. He's leading by example, but you look at the, you look at the Montreal Canadians and they're first of all, they're getting scoring from their defensemen. 
Shea Weber scored today. Jeff Petrie in game one in overtime. A beautiful half-toe drag there to knock Matt Murray off his angle just a little bit and squeak it for the win. Looking at Carey Price, and this is a guy we said could steal one game. We said that, but he is playing like a man on a mission because this Montreal Canadiens team, you, did, you honestly, you were thinking sweet, but we're seeing with Pittsburgh that last year's playoffs are carrying over. Yeah, you know who didn't think sweet? Me, a little wager on Pittsburgh winning the series three games to one, so my fingers are crossed that that still stays true. But like you said, Pittsburgh is just too much veteran talent to, to fall apart in this series. And I think losing game one was a wake-up call. You see Sidney Crosby come out in game two like a bat out of hell. So did Malkin. He looked kind of lost in game one, but game two he looked like Evgeny Malkin does. And uh, I mean, it, it's unreal to watch. And you talk about more skilled players. Chicago plays Edmonton in game three later on tonight. And Connor McDavid, after getting criticized that he doesn't have the, the vocal leadership that you need in the postseason, comes out, silences the haters with a hat trick, and scores one of the prettier backhand breakaway goals you're ever going to see. Apparently, he reached speeds on skates of close to 30 miles an hour. The speed limit in Brooklyn, New York is 25. So he's faster than the cars in Brooklyn, New York on skates. I don't know how you're supposed to defend this man, but he, he is one of the most skilled players. I think he, might, he is the most skilled player of all time. Of course, it's different errors with Wayne Gretzky, but I know it's a bold statement. I think he is the most skilled NHL player of all time. Brendan, it's not even close. You know, you look at Crosby and what he does. Connor McDavid is 23 years old. He's a year older than us. You know what we're going to be doing at 23? Not playing the NHL, I can tell you that. No, we're, we're going to be doing this and having a lot of fun, but we're not going 30 miles an hour. That, he could kill someone. He could kill someone with that speed. So but it's not even the speed, Brendan. It's just the mental ability where he knew. First off, he's bouncing the puck like a lacrosse ball on a stick and going around people. That just blows my mind. Watching hockey in general, seeing people on skates and going, yeah, that's kind of actually insane that that's a thing. And then seeing a guy do that against players of that caliber, it's like a little game for him where he's going to say, what am I going to do next to show off? I think it was last year or two years ago, between the legs against Dallas. Yep. Like the things that he thinks about doing in a game is something that you really, really only going to see done in a video game. Yep. Now they should add a little juggling thing in the video game so we can all reenact that. But as a goalie, that is impossible to read because you're thinking he's coming in way too fast to make a move to go back end. But he does it, and it's not even that he gets the backhand shot off. He roofs the backhand shot. That is an impossible save for a goalie. I'm getting chills just thinking about that. Imagine a guy coming, coming that fast. I'm going to be on my butt because I might just leave my net at that point. Give him, he's going to score anyway. You might as well just walk it out. He's just tremendous talent. And to think that he's doing this at 23, yes, he's had injury problems over the last couple of years. Again, you're talking about his leadership. He got the captaincy. People yeah. thought too young, but he's showing that he can step up in big moments and this Oilers team is do or die with him. And he's showing that he's got this talent. He has what it takes to be a Wayne Gretzky and bring the Oilers to a place where they haven't been in a very long time. hundred percent. And the thing that's most amazing, like you said, is that not only is he that fast, but when he gets in tight, he doesn't slow down. He just keeps his hands moving. So he's putting four or five moves in, in front of a goaltender going full speed. It, it, it is impossible to stop. You can't tell which way he's going to go, if he's going to go laterally or if he's going to go up, down, go five hole. And every single goaltender guesses and every single goaltender guesses wrong. That's just how skilled he is. But, but that's the exciting part of hockey. Now we go to the more disgusting side. And Barkley Goodrow of the Tampa Bay Lightning put an incredibly nasty hit on Andres Bjork of Boston Bruins in today's game. Bjork was going onto one knee after releasing a shot, and Goudreau just came, chicken-winged him with the elbow right to the head. It was called a two-minute charging penalty on the play. Should have been a major. Uh, I believe there will be supplementary discipline coming from the NHL, and it was just a very, very, very offensive hit. It's not even like it was an accident. 
you, you see a guy like that who's going to take a shot, which I'm pretty sure he's going to do, make a move towards the net. He's, on a, he's not even standing up. He's low to the ground. Yep. And, you, you, you know, it's hard. The game's so fast. And if you're Goudreau, you're going to say, I didn't see him go down. But your job, because he's already in a vault. It's one thing if you hit a guy coming across the rink, blindsiding him, head, hit to the head. That's terrible as it is. This guy's already in a you could kill. You could have killed that guy. He could be off on a stretch and never playing a hockey game again. We've seen big hits. This whole playoffs, we've seen a lot of dirty things. You look at Mike Matheson in Florida, who got scratched for game three because he is just, he got fined for a high stick because they deemed that it was intentional. He got fined 1,460, whatever, and change, which is like to shake my pockets, why don't you? Exactly. Pay it out. But you've seen guys like this, you come across just brutal hits. You look at Mark Shifley gets hurt. Not even a huge, dirty play, but it's the fact that you push. Like, it's just the... The things we're seeing, I think it's the fact that we're gone from a game for four months where these players are only playing against their, their own teammates. They're not going to hit hard. Pete Skidder's moving faster. You know, like a Connor McDavid, there's only one way to slow him down, and that's hit him. And yep. we're seeing a lot of people step up and make vulnerable hits, which is costing a lot of injuries. And, you know, it's not what you want to see in the sport. It's a dangerous sport. Players know. I love seeing, you know, after everyone gets hurt, everyone's cheering for one another. We've seen hockey become a really tight-knit group during quarantine. We'll get to the numbers over quarantine, the tremendous job they did. But it's just dirty. They were trying to get dirty hits out of the game, and they've been great, great progress with this. And we're seeing this halt in play. They're coming back now. They're facing real opponents. It's vicious. It's ugly. And Goudreau is going to get suspended. I think he better. It's different, though, because on the rink, he didn't get called for a major. We saw this in the Islanders game. Mike Matheson hits Johnny Boychuk clean to the head. I mean, what we thought was clean to head right off the bat. They review it because you can review major penalties and they rule that it's going to be a minor penalty. Doesn't get fined. A little, a little crazy. I don't know what, what's being watched at player safety. But you look at a play like this, and if this is called the major on the rink, there is zero complaining. Absolutely zero. But the problem was it's called the minor. You can't challenge that. That might be a rule the NHL wants to look at, given the fact and the severity of the hit. 100%. And- and like you said, they're, they're ratcheting up the physicality. It's not a regular season game anymore. It's a postseason game. So after a four-month layoff, these guys aren't as acute as they were during the regular season with their hockey sense right now. They're just getting started. And now you got guys that are headhunting. And as a defenseman, there is no better feeling than when you see a forward coming at you with his head down and you know you could step up and just end his night right there. And a lot of the hits have been clean. This one was not. This one was dirty. He saw him going down. He, he tried to blindside him. If he was up and he hit him in the chest, great hit. But it was very evident that he was not up, and he never changed his level. He stayed at the head, and it was very dirty. But something that's great that the NHL has done is zero positive COVID tests in this bubble on over 7,000 administered tests. And I mean, you, you see the MLB, how much trouble they're having. The NHL players have just done their job. They stay healthy, wear their masks when they have to. And it's been a beautiful job all around and we'll get to the MLB with the Yankees in a second, but just kudos to the NHL players, staff, everybody in that bubble for taking the necessary precautions. It comes down to the one question only, and it's why are the players there? You look at other sports, basketball. There's a lot of stuff coming out that, you know, these guys aren't tuned into just playing basketball. They want to have fun in the bubble. They want to, they want to go out. They want to do things. They're being restricted. You look at baseball. We'll get to it in a little bit. Going to a casino, going even out to get coffee. Looking at hockey, and hockey players have said, we don't care where we sleep. We don't care what food you give us. We don't care if we stay in a $40 a night hotel. We're here to do one thing, one thing only, and that's to win a Stanley Cup. And the players come together. If you, Hockey is such a tight-knit community. You see it around the NHL. And I think it goes to the fact that players are not paid anywhere close to other leagues, and they're not selfish. 
They know if they go out and something happens, it's on them. You're looking in baseball. Again, we'll get to it. The Marlins team didn't care. The Marlins team didn't care. They went out. They got people sick. Uh, whatever it is, we'll, we'll get to it. But you look at hockey, and it's like no one player would dare leave the bubble. They're having a blast. I know Barry Trotz was interviewed after the game, one of the Florida games, Islander games, and he said, you know, when you talk to retired players, what, all they say that they miss, not even about the game, it's being with the boys. Now you're in a bubble. You're playing the Islanders. are playing a ping pong tournament, a very, very competitive ping pong tournament. And Trot said, this is what you're going to miss. The teammates coming together, bonding. And honestly, they're not looking at the bubble as a bad thing. Yes, they're away from their families. That's, that's unfortunate. It sucks for a lot of people that, you know, have young ones and all that kind of stuff. But they're there to do one thing, and that's to win. Yep, 100%. And moving on to the Yankees, who have only won so far this season. They're 8-2 and two after losing the first game of a doubleheader today. But they are currently up 2-1. to one in the top of the seventh, which is the last inning of this game because it's a doubleheader with the new MLB rules. They have the bases loaded with nobody out, so they're sitting pretty. Aaron Judge, unreal start to the season. Hit his seventh home run of the season already in the first game of the doubleheader. He had six home runs over a five-game stretch where he homered in five straight games. Before the start of the doubleheader today, he was hitting 314 with six home runs and 14 RBIs with a 1-2-7-0 OPS. Oh, anytime you have over a thousand, it's unreal. Anytime you have over 1200, you're really doing something right. And I mean, three run home run and a comeback effort in game one, but judge has been clutch all season. So is Urshela who's batting 300 and just a great start to a year that the Yankees believe this is their time to win a world series. You're looking at Aaron judge now and you're seeing that he's trying to, he's on a mission right now this year. He's trying to show that he went healthy He's worth whatever money you have to give to keep him back on this team. You look at a guy like Trout. He stays healthy. He plays games. He does unbelievable things. Judge is an above-average fielder, superstar fielder, superstar hitter, comes up clutch. This is when he's healthy, and we're seeing what happens when a guy like Judge is healthy. This lineup is completely different. It provides depth. You know, Judge in the lineup's great. When Judge is out of the lineup, you can afford to walk a Stanton. Sanchez isn't playing well. You know, you have guys like Brett Gardner's really struggled despite launching – home runs left and right, like he's Barry Bonds. But you just goes to show that Aaron Judge healthy can be one of the best players in baseball. Yeah, 100%. Another great player, DJ LeMay, is batting over 400. Garrett Cole's done his job winning all three of his starts this season. But another pitcher on a more serious note, Mike Soroka, torn Achilles, uh, very sickening-looking injury as he tried to get off the mound and just wound up collapsing, really, and once somebody goes down like that, you know it's a, a very serious injury and it wound up being a torn Achilles. So 0-1-1 with the 3-9-5 ERA on the young season. and a Big loss because he's one of the bright young pitchers in this league and the Braves really were going to count on him down the stretch, especially in a 60-game season. Yeah, you know, they have Albies and Acuna and Soroka. You look at this team and they're trying to take that next step as a, a baseball club. And, you know, the guy's only 22 years old. It's a freak injury. He knew right away, the trainer said, right when he went out there, he goes, it's my Achilles. You don't want to see injuries like this to a player like that on a team that was trying to take the next step. Yes, obviously, other players are going to have to step up now. They got veteran leaders in Freddie Freeman. You know, Acuna has a year, another year under his belt. Albies, another year under his belt. Riley at third base, another year under his belt. You know, this is a team that was looking to take the next step. Marquecas, who originally opted out from playing this year, opts back in. So I think leadership-wise, they're going to be okay, but you never want to see a guy get hurt at such a young age. And this is a guy that was looking to make himself, make a name for himself as a next superstar for this Braves team. A hundred percent. And on a different note, I'll let you start with the Marlins, obviously 17 players test positive. This is what I'm talking about, Brennan. If you're telling me you want, you're playing a sport 
a, a kid's game for a living, all you're told is be smart about it. And they really weren't 17 players test positive. Originally the number was lower, but after more tests and you see coaches getting sick and this really impacted the baseball season because not only did the Mons have to take a week off, but it impacted other teams around the league. The Phillies couldn't play up for a while because they were waiting for tests. You know, it's, it's, it's selfishness. And yes, baseball players, they were told you hit a home run. You can't, you know, can't high five, can't hug. Can't, you can't do all this stuff. But what do we see when players come off after hitting a home run? Hugs, high fives, all this stuff. And it's, you know, it, it takes a while to get results. But you don't know in that time off from taking the results how many other people you could have affected. Derek Jeter, CEO of the Marlins now, released a statement on this. So I'll just read it to you guys. Our guys were not running all around town in Atlanta, which is where the outbreak, you know, started. We did have a couple of individuals leave the hotel. We had guys leave to get coffee to get clothes. A guy left to have dinner at a teammate's house. There were no other guests on site. There were no salacious activity. There was no hanging out at bars, no clubs, no running around Atlanta. The entire traveling party got a little too comfortable. And you know what I say to that, Brennan? That's BS. 100%. 100%. You just, you know, it's, you could make an apology all you want. I'm not blaming Derek Jeter, obviously. It's about the players. But you got to have more accountability than that. You could cost somebody their life. Yep. And, and another team, the St. Louis Cardinals, Back-to-back series cancellations with the Milwaukee Brewers and Detroit Tigers. Obviously, they apparently went to a casino, which is just extreme stupidity to the highest degree, especially at this point, and especially what just happened with the Marlins. I don't know why anybody would even remotely come close to thinking about doing that, but just a, a very serious, serious malfeasance on their part. The only reason I would go to a casino is to bet at how many more people test positive from the Miami Marlins. That's the only reason I'm going to the casino because Definitely. first off, how many casinos, I mean, off the record, me and you, Brendan, have been on casinos online. Okay. Yep. It's possible. These players have a ton of money. They could do it. They're not going to get in a lot of trouble. I don't understand why they had to do this. And again, it's going back to the whole selfish thing. The baseball season is in doubt. I know Manfred told new networks that get scheduling ready for next week in case he has to cancel. And it's just a shame because again, you look at a team like the Yankees, we're Yankee fans. Amazing start. You look at the Mets and they would go, yeah, yeah, cancel the season. So many injuries, all that stuff. It's just, it's just, it's not good. It's not good at all for baseball. It is. And these COVID cases are going to have to stop if they want the MLB season to continue. Uh, We're going to go to a quick commercial break. When we get back, we're going to talk Mets baseball. We will have Jake Brown on the show, writer for the New York Post, does a lot of stuff there, covers the Mets and he'll, he'll get all us, get us up to date with all their information. So Mets fans, get your tissues ready because it hasn't been a great start so far. The Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Radio Network. You're listening to the BS Sports Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the BS Sports Show. In a moment, we'll be joined by Jake Brown, who is an executive producer for the New York Post. He covers the New York Mets. He'll talk Mets baseball with us. A big win for them today, 3-1, to one, improving their record to 5-8 and eight on the young season. Obviously, they're going to have to turn things around soon if they want to get back in that 16 team playoff contention. Yeah. The Mets, you know, milestone today, Billy Hamilton making his Mets debut gets his 300th career stolen base. And this was a guy that when he first came up Cincinnati Reds, he was, you know, this guy was known for stealing a ton of bases in the minor leagues. The problem was, could he get on base? And we saw over his short MLB career so far as that's really been a problem. And if you don't get on base, Brendan, how are you going to steal? How are you going to steal? You can't. You have to be used as only a pinch runner and put in the defense, which limits your playing time. 
Well, Billy Hamilton actually might be a bigger signing than people realize, not only due to his speed and his ability to play off the bench, but we have extra inning rules this year that apply to Billy Hamilton type of players where he's going to be the runner on second base if he's not playing in extra innings. And he's got that ability to steal third and create havoc on the base paths, which could potentially lead to some runs in extra innings for the New York Mets if they get to that scenario in a game. Uh, Robinson Cano, which we'll talk to Mr. Brown about in a little bit, batted over almost 400 on the year. I think over 400 actually. And he's on the 10 day IL now, which is a big loss for the Mets. People were down on Cano, obviously, he was the other guy in that Diaz move, and he really wasn't looking great last year, but this year off to a phenomenal start, and his age shows with a little bit of an injury. It's tough. You know, the Mets seem to have Yankee-itis this season with a ton of injuries. Again, we'll talk to Jake Brown about it when he gets on, and the problem now is the Mets need to rely on players like Pete Alonso to get hot and play, and Pete Alonso on the year right now is, is batting 180. One home run, four BIs, an OPS of .579, and you know, it's a complete opposite thing. We're seeing Aaron Judge take off, and we're seeing Pete Alonso do absolutely nothing. And this hurts a Mets team that's seen a lot of guys go down with injury, and we've seen subpar play. 100%. And we talked about Judge, who has a 1270 OPS, and now you look at Alonso, who's 579. So we, we know the type of player Alonso can be. Obviously, it's tough because it's only been 13 games, and people are going to have to get on him because that's over a sixth of the season. So I think we're going to have Jake Brown join us right now. Obviously, the executive producer with the New York Post. and He's going to come on to talk baseball with us. Jake Brown, how are you doing today? Yo, what's up, guys? So the Mets get a big win today against the Nationals. So take us through what you saw from this game tonight. I saw the defense not look like the Mets. I saw the defense look like a team that uh, was pretending to be the Mets. And uh, it was incredible. And Rick Porcello finally did something. Uh, it's Took him a while, but that's why you brought him here. You brought him here, you know, give you a quality start, and he did better than that. And it was nice to see Seth Lugo finish off the game. No Edwin Diaz, no Batez, no Familia. Just let, you know, the old reliable finish it off. So, you know, not a, you know, he still left guys in the base pass, still a small army, not the seven-line army in the base pass, but they still left some guys on. So that's something that's always been a concern. But otherwise, good to get a win. And they also – Got lucky, let's be honest, that Scherzer, whatever the hell happened, he uh, yep. was out of there after an inning. So that helps. Well, that's the type of thing you need, especially when you're struggling. you got to capitalize on that type of opportunity. I saw that Pete Alonso got a hit. Maybe the monkey comes off his back a little bit. And especially with the injury bug we just mentioned, Robinson Cano, uh, do you have any updates or can you just take us through what's going on with the injury bug with the Mets right now? Well, Cano, that's an injury where he says he'll be back immediately. I think within two weeks he'll be back, but who knows with him. But I think he wants to be out there. And he always usually comes back from injuries fairly quickly. The problem is he ends up getting re-injured. Uh, so hopefully that doesn't happen. But I think McNeil, they were waiting because they have the off day tomorrow. That I think McNeil will be back sometime this weekend. And um, same for Rosario. I would be shocked if they're not back by Sunday at the latest. Again, luckily you're playing the Marlins. I know the Marlins have been winning a few, but I mean, with that roster, I they got to be able to sweep. If not, you have to win this series and beat the Marlins every series. These limited games, you just have to beat those terrible teams. And the Marlins, with their COVID happening, are a terrible team. Speaking about a terrible thing that happened with the Mets is Cespedes went missing for a little bit. You know, all the controversy where Brody Van Wagen they released a statement that they couldn't find him. Apparently, you know, people knew where he was. He left. Do you think as a Met fan, as someone who covers the Mets, that he left because he was scared of COVID? Or do you think it's the fact that he was struggling? He's in a contract year. He was like, you know what? I think it's better for me to just step away. 
It's the latter. It's it's very obvious that if, if it were for COVID, he would have done it before the season. It's, it's a load of BS for him to say anything otherwise. And as much as I think COVID is very serious, and I think you should take your precautions, it's very fitting that he did it on a Sunday. He's hitting 180, 170. He got benched for a third time. He knows his incentives aren't going to hit him. They're already prorated. The incentives aren't going to give him a ton of money. $2.2 million to even a guy like Pete Alonzo is a ton because he's not making a lot. $2.2 million assessment is the chump change. So he factored that in there. And, um, you know, I think also he hates this baseball lifestyle. That He can't live his normal way. He can't do the things that he likes to do. So he'd rather be on his ranch. He, what he doesn't realize is that if he wants to play next year while he'll get an opportunity – He'll be lucky to get anything close to something, 10 or $20 million, unless the team gets desperate. I mean, you don't walk out on the team and then come back next year and, you know, everyone wants to. We see a lot of guys who have one bad year, and it means they got to take a minimum deal or take something that they're not accustomed to taking. Yeah, maybe he wants to, wants to go fight a boar or something, do something fun like that. You know, it's always a fun time. Yeah, I could see him filming an Old Town Road uh, <laughs> remix uh, <laughs> on his ranch sometime soon. Anyone should uh, yeah, it's the way he did it too, just without telling anybody, kind of just disappearing. It, it just doesn't speak to a good teammate. And you, now you look at somebody else in Edwin Diaz, who I, I would say he struggled a little bit this year. He only has two save opportunities. He converted one of them. You said Lugo closed out the game today. So uh, what do the Mets need to get out of Diaz? Uh, obviously, if Lugo's starting to close games, a little, their faith is running low on him. Yeah, I, well, Diaz is not going to close anymore. He's got to be used in lower leverage roles. I like how they've used him in kind of 3 nothing games or games they might be trailing a few, seventh inning. It's like he's allergic to the ninth, but you put him in the seventh, and he's like somewhat fine. So keep him away from the eighth and the ninth. Seventh or before, I'm fine with it. He's just got to bring that confidence back. It's all about confidence when you have that good stuff. When you get shaken up like he does, who would have thought that with cardboard cutouts, he'd still be terrible, though? It's unbelievable that, you know, there's a cardboard cutout of me at City Field that Figgy got me that I don't know where it is yet, but I have been booing very much from that cutout. <laughs> but uh, he, he's he got to be in the seventh inning or before. I think he'll be fine in that role. I just don't want to see him again in the ninth. I'm fine with Lugo, Wilson. Even Batances has been a little shaky. I think Batances, once he gets his velocity back in these coming weeks, he'll be an option to close as well. I mean, we expected this bullpen to be this year to be a major advantage for this team. Again, you had Batances, who missed believe, the whole year last year. You got Lugu, who had a phenomenal year. you saying Diaz, you know, you're going to put him in games where they're losing 3 nothing or they're winning 3 nothing. Cases like that. Do you think, you know, he said something to Rojas that he wants to play in more games. He thinks he's not playing in enough games to get ready and get set. Do you think that's a smart move to put him in more games, or do you think that he's got to make the most of his opportunities when they come? He's got to take what he can get. He's got to stop being picky. How about you pitch better and don't stink and be garbage? And maybe you'll get a chance. I mean, he's been terrible. What does he want? More chances? Does he want more Mets fans to go into to cardiac arrest? Like, <laughs> apparently he doesn't care about the, the health of Mets fans uh, because he cannot pitch more than he already does. So, no. Listen, you go in when Rojas tells you. You can't keep begging for more opportunities. I would take any opportunity because if he does do better, there's a – the chance he's back in that role. I don't. I hope it doesn't happen, but there are going to be times where you're going to have to use him in the ninth inning, whether Lugo pitch. You know, Lugo's not a guy who go every day. He could go every two or three days. So there's going to be times you can't use Lugo. There's going to be times Batances went back-to-back. There's going to be times where it's already happened where you overused Justin Wilson. So 
uh, there's a chance he gets back in that role. So I say to him, you know, whenever your name's called upon, come in. It's not we spoke about Billy Hamilton already and how he's made, he made his Mets debut. He gets his 300 stolen base. What did you see from him in this game? And do you think, you know, with the injuries, that's why he's up here. But do you think he could play a bigger role than people expect? Uh, if he does, that means there's a lot of injuries still in the last two months, which is very possible. I mean, the guys are pulling hamstrings, a lot of weird injuries. I mean, Scherz are coming out after winning. So these kind of things are happening left and right. I mean, I'm going to, I have a fantasy team this year and it, every day you have to monitor because guys go out with COVID or an injury every single day. So a lot can change, but I think he'll have an okay role. He'll have, you know, one of the late game pinch runner, uh, Late game defensive replacement tonight. You saw some him flash some leather. You saw him steal bases. So he has his role. He's not a starter. He'll play for now in the short short term uh, until these guys come back. But he's what he is. He's a veteran. He's a guy who could teach some other guys. And he's a late game pinch runner and defensive. So just quickly, who to you has been the biggest surprise on the Mets this year, whether good or bad? Just the one that stood out to you as somebody you expected to do something and either above and beyond or way below. I mean, below, I guess, is easy because a lot of them are below. Uh, <laughs> Cano was hitting well, Cano was hitting very well before he got hurt, which is unfortunate, which surprised me a bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. Not, that's not a corona cough. Don't worry. <laughs> you're through, a, you're through a screen. It's completely fine. We just <laughs> okay. I just something down my throat. Um, like the Mets, choking. Alonzo's, yeah, pretty much. Alonzo's been a, a disappointment so far, but I think he'll come around. And, uh, that's, man, that's tough. Uh, D has been disappointed because I really thought without fans he would have improved, but he hasn't. So that's been a disappointment. A positive, I think, has been J.D. Davis. And I think J.D. Davis' defense tonight at third makes you start to think maybe he should be the everyday third baseman. Maybe, like, left field, he is an adventure, but those down Smith. But with McNeil's back, I think I'd rather have J.D. at third and McNeil in left field. So that's something. It's only one night, but – he was making plays like a seasoned vet at third base, which we haven't seen from him where he's shaking left. So the positive would be his defense and maybe transformation as maybe the future third baseman, which is a question because Jed Lowry will not be playing third base ever again in a Mets uniform. Or did he ever start to? Uh, I yelled about him at, I don't know if you guys heard that rant Monday, but I ended it screaming about <laughs> Jed Lowry. How he has 20 million and I'm not going to do it again, but I have zero. So it's just, uh, that was wild. Uh, Miguel Rojas, you know, his first year manager. What have you seen from him in this, you know, early on in the season? And have you been surprised with the way he's been able to control this group? Obviously, you know, they've been, they've been mixed. But, you know, his first year, it's a tough year to come in as your first year as a manager in the MLB. Well, he has an advantage over some managers because he's managed in the Dominican League. And I've talked with Figgy about this because Rojas used to coach him up a bit. And he played – he managed in the shorter season. So he's used to kind of how, how to use guys, how to play guys in a shortened season. Obviously, you can't really compare that to the big leagues. But, you know, there are plenty of big league players that go over there, like Alon Lagars and guys like that, who go down there and play in the offseason, in these winter leagues that they play. We see it all the time. So in that sense, he has an advantage. He hasn't been great, let's be honest. He's made some boneheaded decisions, like starting Nino, Nito the other night when your lineup's down, not playing Dom. Uh, his usage of Diaz has been puzzling, keeping Wilson in that game where the Mets lost 6-5 and the tying run was at third and didn't score at City Field. So he's had some questionable decisions. It's early, you know, you deal with the the cards that you're dealt, and obviously they've had some injuries. I'd like to see some better decisions. He pulled Forcello, Forcello in Atlanta when I thought he should have left him in. 
So he uses Paul Seawalls far too often in games that, you know, Paul Seawalls should be a mop-up duty, not anything else. So uh, he's made questionable decisions, but, you know, you give him time. Like you said, he's a rookie manager. Uh, we're coming off Mickey Calloway, so you can't get much worse than Mickey. That's true. Before we let you go, I want to flash back to Monday. The Mets win 7-2 over the Braves. DeGrom gets run support. Did you wake up the next day and, you know, go like this a little bit and go, did that actually happen? Like, what, what's your take as a Mets fan that sees, oh, wow, look what happens when DeGrom gets run. It's not a surprising result when DeGrom gets more than one or two runs. Yeah, it's pretty embarrassing. Like, his records should be – like, the, the stats are unbelievable where if, like, they scored three runs or more either last year or two years ago, they'd be, like, 30-0 or something ridiculous or close to that where he would be, like, the greatest pitcher in baseball history record-wise. And a record had a lot more importance than it does now, but he would be one of the great pitchers ever if he could get our run support. It's frustrating, and, you know, 25 to $30 million a year lets you, you know, wipe away the tears a little bit better when you're wiping it with million-dollar bills. But I think that he on the Yankees would be – literally be 30 and all. Like, it, with the run support that Yankees pitchers get and with what Garrett Cole's going to get, he – I mean, he's already better than Garrett Cole, but he would make Garrett Cole look awful if he was on a team that gave him run support. So it's, it's amazing. And I love hearing the quote from Freddie Freeman on Pete Alonzo's mic'd up thing uh, about him and just uh, how he strikes out every time. He could have all these, all this practice and still strike out. And uh, so, you know, it's, it's frustrating, but hopefully that tide turns eventually. Well, that's Jake Brown. Thank you, Jake, for joining us tonight. We'll have you on definitely in the next coming weeks, but stay positive Met fans, Jake Brown, check him out on Twitter. He rants. He loves to talk about the Mets. He's got some great podcasts over there. So definitely check him out. Thanks, Jake, for joining us. We really appreciate it. All right, guys. Thanks for having me. So that was Jake Brown. Guys, check him out on Twitter. He is a hell of a guy to follow. Working at New York Sports. He does executive producer, has a few podcasts. He does Ranger podcasts, uh, Met podcasts. So definitely a guy to follow. And I'm sorry, Met fans, that Met this brings depressing conversations. But you heard him there. Edwin Diaz is going to have to play in a role and get the, the – he has got to get his game up in order to move on to go later innings. And I can't blame the managing position there. I know you look at the trade now. Cano's hurt. Cano did nothing last year. He's played – of course he bats well and gets hurt. They move him down the lineup, which, I mean, that was a bonehead. You have to do that. You can't keep him at the third hole. You put him at the third hole. He's not a third hole player anymore. He's got to play down. He's got a lefty back. He still has pop. His fielding has gone down a little bit. Again, I like McNeil at second base, but – it's just tough to be a Met fan. And, you know, it's, it's every year it's the same thing. It's, it's flashback to that uh, Family Guy episode where they go, and the pitch, and the season's over. Because every year I hear my Met fan friends go, no, this year, this year, it's going to be – yes, Jake Freelander, if you're watching this, I'm calling you out. Not that it's wrong. It's just the way it goes. Okay, you're not the only Met fan that does it. There's a lot of Met fans, though, that, you know, it's not even their fault. Look at the roster. Look on paper. You don't expect Alonzo to start off to a slow start. You expect Diaz to bounce back. Batances is Batances. Wilson Ramos is a hell of a catcher hitting-wise, not you know defensively. And it's just the same storyline. This is going to be it. This is going to be the year. And it never works out. Usually we see them start really well and then just completely tail off. But it's just, again, a shortened season. You're seeing all these injuries. We know what injuries do to bad teams because we've seen what they do to good teams. And for Yankees team, if they have injuries, they have depth. The Mets, they don't have it. Yep, and today was a big win for them. Obviously, they, they got a 3-1 win against the Nationals, division opponent. Uh, they got a, got a, a lot of guys going. You know, it wasn't an offensive outburst, but a couple of guys got hits that have been struggling recently, including Pete Alonzo. And 
we do a quick scoreboard update around the MLB. The Atlanta Braves, who lead that division, lost to the Toronto Blue Jays 2-1. to The Cleveland Indians shut out the Cincinnati Reds 2 nothing. The Minnesota Twins, who continue to roll, one of the biggest surprises in baseball at 10-2. and They beat the Pirates 5-2 to today. The Boston Red Sox shut out the Tampa Bay Rays 5-0, making the Rays seem a little more weak in the AL East race. The New York Mets, like we said, won 3-1 over the Nationals. The Marlins beat the Orioles in seven innings, one nothing, and currently going on. What an abysmal game that must have been to watch. But they're four and one Miami, so you know people are sleeping on them with the COVID, but they're getting people sick and they're beating them. Uh, the Angels and Mariners are tied at zero in the third inning. The Dodgers are up two nothing on the Padres in the fourth. The Astros are up four two on the Diamondbacks in the fourth inning as well. The Athletics up two one on the Rangers in the fourth inning. The Giants are up 4-2 on the Rockies in the 6th. The Brewers are up 1-0 on the White Sox in the 8th. The Cubs at the end of 7 are up 2-1 on the Royals. And the Marlins in the mid-7th are up 2-1 again on the Orioles. So the Marlins, if they win this doubleheader, will improve to 5-1 on the season. They they might be in first place in the NL East. I don't know how that math works with the records. But, I mean, the, the Yankees and Phillies split their doubleheader. But the Miami Marlins have the potential to be 5-1 on the season there's nothing to possibly uh, there's nothing that could come out of my mouth that makes that sent, that statement like logical at all i mean you see on teams where people get hurt and people step up we saw it at the yankees when they brought up the baby bombers for the first time and the run they went on looking at miami they pretty much swapped their whole team out and it's kind of crazy to see it to see it paying off but i want to talk about one thing before we get to an amazing interview with steve cangelosi play-by-play announcer for the new jersey devils which will take us toward the end of the show. You see what Mike Trout did yesterday? Yep, dad strength. Dad strength. Mike Trout on leave of absence because his wife gives birth. First at bat back, hits a home run. Can you do you expect anything else? Nope. Too talented. It's just Connor McDavid of baseball, if you will, right? I mean, just supremely talented defensively, offensively. Just can do it all. Legitimate five tool player. He would be the face of baseball if he played anywhere else besides Anaheim and if particularly the East coast. But I mean, you might think that judge right now is the face of baseball, just a recognition that he gets being on the Yankees. But I mean, Mike Trout is head and shoulders, the best player in baseball. I, I don't care what people say uh, to me. I'd take him on my team any day over anybody else. And uh, just the fact that the first at bat back after a paternity leave, it's a home run. It's, it's surreal. And uh, like you said, though, the Miami Marlins, the fact that, all these players test positive for COVID. They swap out a roster, already young roster. It's completely inexperienced and nobody thought would do anything. They swap out with an even more young and inexperienced roster. <laughs> Five and one potential doubleheader sweep over the Orioles. One nothing win over the Orioles. And like you said, that must have been a rough game to watch. But that's why I love baseball. Because, you know, you look at sport, like we're big hockey fans. You would think, how could someone that loves hockey this much, a fast-paced game like this, love a game of baseball? And I think people that don't like baseball don't see it the way we see it. I see it. They see it as, oh, my God, three hours, so much time in between. What I see is, oh, it's a 1-0 count, now it's a 1-1. The complete mental game, the now, okay, what pitch am I going to throw? What is the hitter waiting for? Every pitch changes the game. And that's why I love baseball because every day someone else could win. You look at other sports. Basketball, not going to talk much about it. Not a huge fan of the NBA. But the team that's supposed to win usually wins. You look at a team, I mean, football, hockey, I love hockey because uh, the worst team in the league could be the best team on any given night. But in baseball, a new pitcher, 
one swing. I mean, these are moments that change a game. That's why it's a fun sport to watch if you're a baseball fan. So, I, I mean, you know, baseball is great. I love that it's back. I, I just hope that, you know, we talked about COVID and everything going on. This, this is not going to be only two teams with the Cardinals and Miami that are going to get it. It's going to spread. The question is, can they continue to have a successful season? Yeah, the, the onus here is all on the players. Uh, obviously, we've seen what happens if you break protocol and start, start taking things into your own hands and forgetting that it is not normal baseball times. It, there's a pandemic going on. But uh, if you look, at like, you look at the teams like the Yankees, the Twins, the teams that are succeeding this season, they're healthy, completely healthy. The Yankees had several players test positive during that summer camp training type thing, and now they're fine. They realize that, okay, if these guys are going to get it, we can get it too. Let's wear masks. Let's stop. Let's stop going out. Stop socializing with people. And we got to lock down, especially if we want a chance at claiming that World Series. And uh, this is what teams are going to have to do. They're going to have to realize that it's on me. We talked about earlier hockey. Hockey players, the young kids don't want to be the guy that pisses off the veteran because then all of a sudden your season becomes miserable. You wind up getting frowned upon. It's a very close-knit sport, very respectful. You know, everyone's got the proper attitude. And in baseball, it's more you have more of a persona like the NBA. But in this type of year, you got to throw that persona out the window. Everybody's got to be team-oriented and respect protocol. Before we go to commercial and then hit it with our interview with Steve Cangelosi, I want to just bring back something that happened with Freddie Freeman. I, I talked about it on the last episode, but I think it's, it's worth mentioning. A guy in physical shape, young guy, a talent baseball player, was terrified for his life. He said he prayed before he went to sleep because he was having 104 point whatever fever every night for a couple nights and he was scared he wasn't going to wake up you know this 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 hits athletes it, you know we think as even us young people that we can't get this you know oh you could get it you know not have any symptoms bring it back to your family you know do damage there if athletes of that caliber in physical shape healthy freddie freeman was wearing a mask doing all the right things still gets it could have died he comes back to play the sport that he loves and he's healthy now. He's fine. We saw Nick Markakis. You know, we see players step away. We didn't see him in hockey because, again, it's, it's closed off. Unless they had a really big medical injury or whatever the case may be, they're playing because they trust the league to get it done. In baseball, it's really hard to trust the league because they don't know what they're doing. From the beginning, Mad Fred, you know, this is how we're going to play it. We're going to, oh, you know, players are going to do this. Players are going to do that. And they didn't. So I think that Baseball has got to do a better job if they want their team to continue. And I just, I just hope for athletes and for fans, everyone stays safe, wears their mask, so we can get through this all together. A hundred percent. And like we talked about, everyone's going to have to take onus on themselves. They're going to have to be respectful of the policies. And, and obviously we have seen that in the NHL. And part of the interview that we have coming up after this commercial break with Steve Cangelosi is about how he handled the quarantine being a sportscaster. And we also get into a little bit of the NHL qualifying rounds with him. So you won't want to miss it. Stay tuned, everybody. It is the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. You're listening to the BS Sports Show on the Worldwide Sports Radio Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the BS Sports Show. We hope you're enjoying it so far. It's about to get even better as we have an interview with New Jersey Devils play-by-play announcer Steve Cangelosi. It was pre-recorded on Monday. Pleasure talking to Steve, and I hope you guys enjoy it. We'd like to welcome the New Jersey Devils play-by-play announcer Steve Cangelosi to the BS Sports Show. Steve, thank you very much for joining us here today. Nice to be here, guys. Uh, an empty feeling for me with no Devils as part of this tournament that's been a lot of fun over the first couple of days, the Stanley Cup qualifiers in particular. But it's great to be on your show. 
Thank you very much. So obviously, like you mentioned, the Devils are not in the qualifying tournament. And these are have been unique times for everyone, especially us sports fans of that sport. So for a sports caster, uh, what have you been doing to keep busy, at least in the first part when there was no events going on? And was it nice to have a little bit of a break from broadcast? <laughs> yeah, but the break has gone on far too long. And I think everybody in my position all throughout the NHL and all throughout the sports world is basically just ready to get back to work full force. Uh, I've had a couple of assignments for ESPN. Soccer is the other sport that I do. And I've done a couple of games nationally for them. The MLS is back tournament. I'll probably do a few more of those as the European season uh, gets busy in the fall after Champions League. But you have to remember when the pandemic hit, there was a real sense of uncertainty about when we would get back to work and potentially how quickly we might get back to work. Now, I haven't called a game since March 10th. That's when the Devils played what would turn out to be their final game of the 2019-20 season and a loss to the Penguins. I woke up on the morning of March 12th thinking there was still a possibility that I was going to call a game that night. The Carolina Hurricanes were in New Jersey and still slated to play. I'm getting out of the shower that morning, and I remember talking to my producer as soon as I'm toweling off. He said, stay home. We don't know what's going on, but I suspect we're not doing a game tonight, and that might be the case for a little bit. So you have to remember, Brendan, there was that period of uncertainty where you had in your back of your mind, are you going to be back in four or five days? Are you going to be back in five to 10 days, maybe three weeks? And then suddenly you turn around and that turns into uh, a break of better than 130 days for everybody in my position. So there was always that feeling of stay ready, keep your charts up to date, stay on top of what's going on with negotiations with the players and National Hockey League owners. And I basically went from going zero to 60 right back down to 60. On March 7th, I remember, I had called two games in one day. I did a soccer game in the afternoon, and I did the Devils-Rangers game that night. And then suddenly, four days later, everything is shut down. Trying to use my time productively, working on the house, spending a lot more time with my wife, the dog, and the cat. That's great. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, all of us are doing a lot more family time than <laughs> we originally had planned, but it, it's kind of nice to have that little bit of a step yeah. back. And for me personally, obviously, you took over for the legendary Doc Emmerich, and he's now moved on to NBC Sports. And for what is that like, you know, transitioning into not only doing a play-by-play -play job now for the New Jersey Devils, but you're filling the shoes of one of the best NHL broadcasters to ever do it? I still get asked that question a lot, even though it has been nine years now uh, since that mantle uh, was uh, given to me and that opportunity was given to me. I think the advantage that I had was having worked closely with Doc Emmerich for a period of five years before I actually took over uh, the full-time play-by-play duties. There was a period from 2006-2007 until Doc's last season where I was the pregame, postgame, intermission host and uh, reporting uh, from the uh, Arena Bowl during games when Doc and Chico were the pairing in the broadcast booth for the Devils. So there was a comfort level for me with not only Chico Resch, who would be my first full-time color commentator, but also the production crew, uh, the longtime veterans of MSG Network and MSG Plus, who were responsible for putting together one of the great broadcasts in the NHL. Um, so they knew what I was all about, and that made it easy. Was there pressure? I think the honest answer is yes. 
Doc is a legendary figure in broadcasting. He's one of the most popular people in the National Hockey League. That's something that I always tried to take from him and have uh, in my arsenal just dealing with people around the National Hockey League. He is likable. He gets people to share information because they trust him. And I think that's a big element uh, of what we're all about. Lou Lamorello was the general manager at the time. And I remember having a conversation with him about exactly this topic, the pressure of succeeding a legendary announcer. And I'll never forget what he told me. He said, don't worry about replacing the Hall of Famer. Don't worry about Chico Resch, who was with Doc for a period of 16 years. That was a big part of this because Chico had to get used to a new partner. Lou said to me, just worry about doing your job. Everything else takes care of itself. I thought about that a lot in the early years. That's pretty interesting stuff. I mean, Doc Emmerich, we all know. I mean, you could say the word chassis or hits the goal with the post, hits the post, and all that kind of stuff. Everything he says is just, you know, it's awesome to hear and you got to work with him. So that's definitely something, something very exciting for fans to know about that you got to work with him and fill his shoes. So the Devils, unfortunately, had a really rough season. They got better as the season went on, but, you know, it wasn't a great year. It leads to the loss of Hall and Simmons at the deadline, but it also gives an opportunity for young players to step in there. Which young player did you see take this opportunity and run with it? Well, the answer is in goal because we saw Mackenzie Blackwood get better, exponentially better as the year wore on. So when you say young player, I think in the National Hockey League sometimes that conversation tends to drift towards 19 and 20-year-olds. But I'm probably going to answer your question in the vein of guys who are just a little bit older than that. Blackwood emerged as a guy who will be a number one goaltender in the NHL. Is it long-term with the Devils? I think and hope it is. But we watched an ability by him to mature. And a conversation with Mackenzie Blackwood two years ago is markedly different from what it would be today. He's a little bit more humble. He's a great team guy. He's a presence in the locker room. The greatest gift he has is that he is an incredible athletic specimen. And I think physically, he's capable of taking on a workload that I think few players of his age and experience level can take on at this stage of their career. So the other guys who would fall into that category aren't rookies. Damon Severson is now 25 years old. And I don't mean to be evasive to your question, but a guy with 400 games under his belt now in the National Hockey League might not fall into that young category. But it was finally a breakthrough for Damon to show me, yes, He's going to be a top-pair defenseman in the National Hockey League moving forward. And Pavel Zaka, the long wait. Zaka's 23. Again, not tremendously young, but still a guy you put in that age group where he is uh, identified as somebody who's still part of your future. Zaka was largely disappointing in the first few years after the Devils drafted him sixth overall. But there was that point mid-season where you found a guy who was more aggressive going to the net, more assertive. He always had something defensively going for him, but I think he grew his game beyond that. And then late in the season, Elaine Nasruddin was using him on what would be a very exciting line with Nikita Gusev, the first-year NHL player from Russia, and also Jesper Bratt. And they had something very special going on. I was excited, even though the Devils were largely realistically out of it, with still some 13 games to play to see what they could do in the balance of the season. We never got our answer to that, though. So, P.K. Subban, you know, he doesn't get dealt at the deadline, but he, he struggles offensively, which is what he brings an offensive defenseman. He doesn't get moved. He gets a lot of heat from fans. 
I'll ask you two questions on this. One, what's the reason you think they kept him besides contract? And two, despite the off-ice and on-ice struggles, because he does a lot in the community, but, you know, maybe it gets distracting, what can he bring and teach a young Devils team? I'll tell you what he has to bring. A lot more than 18 points in 68 games. Uh, it has to be more than that if P.K. Subban's time with the Devils is going to be remembered as something productive and something successful. All of the things that he brings off the ice are admirable. His charitable contributions. He is a, a, a wonderful presence in the locker room. And I think a good presence. And what he's done initially after one year in the community in Newark and amongst Devils fans, I think he struck a positive chord in that vein. All of that stuff has 10 times as much value if the player enacting that succeeds on the ice. And there needs to be a point where PK needs to say to himself, this is my team, this is my locker room. I think it's natural to see more of that uh, as time progresses. But the Devils established a team and a power play, for instance, Stefan, last year, where Sammy Votnin was the number one presence on the power play. P.K. Subban won an extraordinary amount of time early in the season without a power play point. That can't happen. Considering his gifts, considering his sheer talent, he has to be much more productive offensively. And defensively, there was room for improvement, too. There was uh, a time where we saw him getting beaten one-on-one -on -one situations. He still ex exhibits an attitude where he feels he is an elite defenseman in the National Hockey League. He has a Norris Trophy on his resume. He has to get back to that level for the Devils to be everything that they can be. Why did they hold on to him at the deadline? I think the answer is pretty clear. There was a hefty price tag for a team to take. I think the Devils are willing to live with this contract short term. Remember, it's only a three-year deal. But for a team, considering where Subban's game was to make that kind of investment, didn't surprise me he remained a devil at the deadline. Andy Green, a, a devil defenseman for a very long time, which you definitely got to know. He joins the Islanders back in February, helped them solidify a defensive group that lost Adam Pillock. They play a very similar defensive, defensive game. And, you know, what does a veteran like that bring to the table, even if he's not getting to play in these round-robin games or any of his uh, qualifier plans, what does he bring to this team? Uh, Andy is a pro's pro. Let's start with that. Uh, Andy Green in a locker room makes your locker room more professional than the day before he arrived. I want to see Andy Green play, though. Uh, and I understand the decision was a tough one probably for Barry Trotz as he put his lineup together with Pellick healthy now. Green was the odd man out as the, Devils, uh, as the uh, Islanders qualifier uh, series with uh, Florida got underway couple of things about Andy Green, because this is a stark contrast with the Islanders to what his role was with the Devils. Because prior to that trade to the Islanders, Green was still averaging 20 minutes a night on the ice. He was essentially still, even at this stage of his career, a top pair defenseman on the New Jersey Devils. And here, for a team that goes to some version of a postseason, he's not cracking the lineup for game one. But understand what Andy Green was. I think along with Kevin Rooney, those were the only two guys for the Devils all season long to play roughly 50 games and still be on the plus side of the plus-minus ledger. That says something about Andy Green. I know some people think the plus-minus stat is a little bit antiquated and we shouldn't even be having it at any part of a conversation. But for a team that was bleeding goals early in the season, to see Andy Green's time with the Devils end at plus one, that says something. Keep this in the back of your mind. 
Lou Lamorello basically cultivated the career of Andy Green, signed him as a free agent, gave him his first lucrative long-term deal. Andy became a devil's captain under Lou Lamorello. All of that stuff matters. Keep it in the back of your mind. Before the Islanders' experience is over, whether it's one round, two, three, or beyond that, my suspicion is you're going to see Andy Green play a role, not just in the locker room, but on the ice, Stefan. I mean, I agree. I think Andy Green, as a, somebody who's watched him over the years and the rivalry with the New York Rangers, has truly, you know, he, he is a defensive defenseman and he's going to be a stalwart in your own end. And, you know, segueing to the rivalries now, you got the Devils, Rangers, and Islanders all in the tri state area, and all teams are heading in the positive direction. You mentioned the Devils have the young talent, some is which starting to prove itself, and they also have prospects, as me and Stefan saw working with the Binghamton Devils, that look to be gearing up towards an NHL roster. Mm -hmm. The Rangers, who are now young, they signed Artemi Panarin, so they have the superstar talent, and the Islanders are defensively one of the better teams in the NHL. So as an announcer, what do you think the rivalry is going to be like, the intensity in the arena once fans are allowed back and the game starts to pick up again? Well, the anticipation is it's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, if you can go back one year ago when Jack Hughes and Capo Caco, when it was apparent that they were going to be playing their home games potentially 15 miles away from each other, maybe for 10 or 15 years, I always wondered, you know, what that dynamic would do for a rivalry so rich in history. Uh, the Rangers have home run hitters. Uh, Artemi Panarin and Mika Zibanejad are hockey's version of home run hitters. The Islanders have one, of course, in Matt Barzell. The Devils need that home run hitter. And whether or not that's going to be Jack Hughes someday or somebody they land on the free agent market, that remains to be seen. I have great faith in Hughes being a dynamic offensive player. I think he's a future Hart uh, Trophy finalist in this league. But that's a conversation for another day. The rivalry will be fun. And keep this in the back of your mind. As the NHL gets set to devise its schedule for whatever 2020-2021 is going to be like, I don't think it's going to mirror the schedule that we've seen in recent years in the National Hockey League. And how does this affect your question? Geography, I think, will be very much laden into the schedule. I think it's easy to foresee an NHL season next year where we get back to division opponents playing each other as many as eight times in one season because I think the league will want to limit travel and those kinds of things, Brendan, along with playoffs, of course. Playoffs are the biggest thing that fuels rivalry. But when you have those teams being so familiar with each other, that breeds more contempt, and I think that's when the rivalry gets really fun. So to answer your question, there's a lot to look forward to here. How about even with the goaltending, too? You got Shesterkin, you got Sorokin joining the Islanders, you got Blackwood. I mean, these are three prime going-to-be-elite goaltenders in this league. That's going to be a lot of fun, too, because these games are going to be tough, tough to beat these goaltenders. It's amazing about – the influence of Russian goaltenders in the National Hockey League and just what we've seen over the last 10 years. Sergei Bobrovsky, who's won a couple of Vezina trophies. Andre Vasilevsky in Tampa Bay. For Shesterkin, it's all there in front of him. And the dynamic of this young man is such that he's had success and only success almost everywhere that he has been to this point in his life. I think it's going to be interesting. As we're having this conversation, we don't know where the Ranger goaltending situation is going to go for the balance of this postseason. I, I suspect if he's healthy, he's going to play Shesterkin. Uh, it's weird because 
there's no time for people to get their games together in these situations. Uh, if it goes bad, it could all be over uh, by 72 hours into the tournament for any one of these teams. But looking ahead, uh, there's so little that I know about Sorokin. I want to see more of him on a day-to-day -day basis and just get a handle for how he plays, his style. Shesterkin has been so impressive in the short times that I've been able to watch him. I was able to call one game live of his at Madison Square Garden when the Devils and Rangers played there prior to the pandemic. And for Blackwood, he's probably the least hailed of the three that you're invoking here. But again, in terms of sheer athletic ability, he is a monster. And he will play, play a, while, a lot, and I suspect succeed a lot. It's going to be fun. You know, there was a time when Brodeur, Lundquist, and before Rick DiPietro hung up his skates, there was a time in New York, New Jersey hockey, where we thought that we were looking at an era of Mickey, Willie, and the Duke. Uh, it, you know, that 1950s baseball, uh, you know, song that, you know, just kind of tell us this was the golden age of center field in New York baseball. We thought we had that. It turns out that wasn't exactly the case because DiPietro fell off and didn't play. But maybe we're into something good here moving forward along those lines. But all three of them still with a tremendous amount of fruit in this league. And most definitely, and it's going to be fun watching all three start against each other if they do go to that <laughs> geographic sure. schedule. But the Devils hired Lindy Ruff as their head coach. And obviously, as a Ranger fan, I got to watch him coach and have a good relationship with a lot of the young defensemen, which I think is a big part in why he was hired for that job. So what do you think that Lindy Ruff will bring to the New Jersey Devils? And do you expect the results to start moving in the right direction soon or within a couple of years? Well, the hiring itself was a bit of a surprise. Um, there were other candidates out there. Peter Laviolette, uh, who's one of only four guys in the history of the National Hockey League to take three different teams to a Stanley Cup final. And I was reading tea leaves during this whole process, and I thought that there was a good chance that would get done. It did not. So where are we with Lindy Ruff, a seasoned veteran, somebody I think who will garner the respect of a locker room immediately. I've known him a little bit over the course of the last 15 years. He's had great success in other stops. I interviewed him a few times uh, when he was head coach in Buffalo. And of course, there was uh, the experience with Dallas prior to that. Um, what he did defensively with the Rangers, at least numerically, that doesn't add up as anything all that impressive. But the Rangers were bottom 10 in goals allowed in the NHL prior to the pause in pandemic. Their penalty kill was also bottom 10. Obviously, he aspires to do much more with the New Jersey Devils, who need to figure out who they are right now. What is their identity going to be under Lindy Ruff? That's a question that I always grapple with when a new head coach comes into a situation like this. A lot of guys right now like to play the same way up tempo the wings explode dump the puck in i want to see if lindy ruff is going to orchestrate something a little bit different but i think he's what this team needs right now it is a different voice a veteran voice there's a long relationship with tom fitzgerald that i think led to his hiring ultimately the two go way back from the time that tom played with the florida panthers more than two decades ago i'm excited to see what lindy ruff brings to the table here and I do think that this is a job that a lot of people would embrace, considering the young pieces that are in place 
this is something that's exciting and I think something that for Lindy Ruff is going to be a rejuvenating experience for him. I'm excited about what the future holds with him. So obviously you're watching the playoffs right now. Do you have a favorite to win the cup this year? Well, when the season began, the Vegas Golden Knights were my pick to win the Stanley Cup. Here's the strange thing. Never did I think they would fire their coach and their chances of winning the Stanley Cup would be enhanced after the firing of the coach. That's how much respect I have for Pete DeBoer, who, of course, we knew from his time in New Jersey. Gerard Gallant's a hell of a coach and did something that was one for the history books a couple of years ago with an expansion franchise. I think if they stay healthy and if they have a clear course on who their number one goaltender is, because I think there is so much emotional support amongst the fan base, amongst a lot of the players there for Marc-Andre Fleury. But I think once they figure out who it's going to be moving forward, they've certainly got the talent to win this war of attrition and I don't see a reason to go off that pick just yet, although Colorado and St. Louis sure are tough, tough teams. The West, I think, can have three teams potentially with a mindset right now of saying we're the team to beat. That yeah, Colorado-St. Louis game yesterday was yeah, really fun yeah. to watch. Came down yeah, I missed line. most of it. I saw the highlights, but yeah, uh, and that shouldn't surprise us. Uh, you know, when you are trying to repeat as a Stanley Cup champion, I, I think that's a very difficult thing to do in the NHL because the dynamic of the playoffs are such where uh, there's so much hockey that you're playing over the course of maybe 15 months in total. It takes its toll. But this four-month break that the St. Louis Blues enjoyed might be exactly the ticket for them to bring their A game. Is that good enough? Potentially. But I think we'll see the best of the St. Louis Blues once again. And just one final question before we let you go. Do you think that the winner of this Stanley Cup playoff and, you know, COVID Cup, if you will, will they have an asterisk next to their name, or especially if it's a team from the qualifying round that winds up having to win a 19-game total? Asterisk to me is one of those words. Uh, I, I don't know that I will classify this as anything different. The only thing I will tell you, 40 years from now, you're going to remember who won the Stanley Cup. Yeah you're not going to forget it. Uh, so in that sense, it is somewhat unique. But no, this is still an amazing accomplishment for whoever's surviving on that last day in September or October. Because if it's a team that comes out of the qualifiers, you're talking about having earned this by eliminating five good teams potentially along the way. No asterisk for me. You might get a different answer from someone else. Well, Steve Cangelosi, thank you very much for joining us. And I know Steph and I look forward to hearing your voice on the Devils broadcast again very soon. I hope that's sooner rather than later, guys. Take it easy. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that was Steve Cangelosi, the New Jersey Devils play-by-play announcer. Again, a big thank you to him for coming on to the podcast and discussing the NHL qualifying round and his thoughts on the quarantine and how the teams are handling it. And like he said, a couple of interesting things about the potential of geographic-based seasons over the next couple of years due to the coronavirus concerns. Obviously, if they're not able to come up with a vaccine or it's still a little bit uncertain, if we can see about eight games a year between the Rangers, Devils, Rangers, Islanders, I know our friendship might get strained a little bit, but it will definitely be exciting to watch. 
Yeah, man. Uh, nothing's like hockey playoffs. Whatever they decide to do in the future, I know they said today that um, they really don't think that the play-ins are, are the qualifiers is going to carry over to next season. I know some coaches stated that, you know, the, see how fun this is and how exciting it is. They might carry it over, but it doesn't seem like that's going to be the case. Uh, Pierre LeBron said that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's, that's a guy that knows who he's talking about a little bit. But, you know, before we sign off, we got a couple of minutes. just want to thank the Worldwide Sports Radio Network for giving us this opportunity because, you know, it's always cool. We've been doing this for, what, two years now, trying to get where yep. we want to go, and, you know, dreams become reality. So it's been, it's been a ton of fun. I felt like this was a great episode. and really had a blast, and can't wait for next week. Yeah, 100%. I mean, first live show, we, we got to do it. And like you said, we've been doing this for a long time. Multiple shows we tried to start where – we got we we like got off the ground, but didn't really do it. And this is the first time during you know the coronavirus pandemic, we were able to take a little bit of advantage, got into it, and it's been great. It was a great episode. Obviously, again, Steve Cangelosi, great interview. Thank you to Jake Brown for coming on. There, there's so many sports going on after nothing at all that it's amazing to talk sports right now. I want to clarify. I made a mistake. I'm owning up to it right now. It's on record. <laughs> Pecorine, I said he had two Vesnas. He had one. He won one in 2018. He was a runner-up in 2014, 2015. My apologies. So before anyone comes at me, there you go. Yep, definitely. And listen, mistakes will happen as long as we own up to it. We, we fact-check heavy on this show. We're always looking at new stats. And again, thank you to everybody who tuned in for this episode. You know, it was a great episode talking hockey and baseball with you, Stefan. And we hope to see you next week to talk more hockey and baseball.